Totally Pretentious, a podcast about great movies. I'm Sean. I'm David. And on today's show, we're going to talk about Fitzcarraldo, directed by none other than the creepiest human being from Germany on the planet, Werner Herzog, who I suspect was not as creepy when he made this film, but he has (laughs) since cultivated an air of mystery and strangeness that... uh, really just follows him around and is part of why he keeps getting cast as creepy people in movies. A kind of avuncular creepiness too. I mean, he, he's, you know, he, the, the image he's created is, uh, there is that weirdness, but, uh, you also just want to hang with him. Yeah. Cause you're just curious about him. Like what, what is, what is this man about? But <laughs> he, he doesn't quite give it away. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, so we're doing Werner Herzog as uh, his Fitzcarraldo, which is one of his two potentially, I guess, most controversial films. Oh, that's a hard. That's hard to pick. Uh, which one of, especially in his uh, his early work, which would be the most controversial? There's a number of candidates. Um, yeah, <laughs> but uh, de- but uh, and and in, in fact, uh, I mean, though I think we could also say it's certainly uh, overall, it perhaps is his most celebrated. Perhaps his perhaps his most famous film. I would say that that's probably true. Uh, you know, right up until he will be starring in The Mandalorian as some <laughs> sort of character for Star Wars, which will probably become the most famous thing that he has been involved in. Uh, yeah, this is probably the film that he's most known for, next to maybe Aguirre. Yeah, it's it's those two I think that uh more than any others will will spring to mind uh when uh people are thinking about what, what you know films directed by Werner Herzog. Yeah, and I and I will say before we're going to go to a different thing before we kind of talk about some of the controversy about Fitzcarraldo, but if you are new to Werner Herzog, I strongly recommend starting with his much more modern documentary films. There's one the title of which I have forgotten that's about fur trapping in uh, in Siberia, where he sort of follows some of the small village populations that live there and sort of documents their lives and the difficulties and that kind of thing. That is, it, he narrates the documentary and it's, it's really good. And he's done quite a few documentary works, which I think he's a much more interesting documentarian, I think, than he maybe is a filmmaker now uh, in the sense of like making fictional production films versus real life but yeah so if you're ever into that just look for his documentaries or just watch jack reacher because he plays a the evil dude without fingers <laughs> yeah he does yeah he, he seems to be spending more time doing documentaries now than than fiction uh films that's true though he has always gone back and forth between them and right. uh including and also blurring the lines uh between them so the, in one documentary he had a character uh, the, the is it it one documentary, the uh, biopic, um, where a, a uh, the the subject uh, was apparently suffering from a particular um, psychological condition, which not only did this person in real life not suffer from, but nobody does. The condition doesn't exist. Oh, fun! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I think most, I mean, though he didn't direct it, he is he was very much a co-conspirator, uh, a co-producer. Uh, and star, uh, incident at Loch Ness, uh, that, uh, he did made with, uh, his partner in crime there was the uh, director, uh, Zach Penn, I think is, uh, one of the most hilarious and sh- smart send-ups of the question of truth 
and fiction in documentaries. And I mean, there's a lot going on in that film, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. And I, I think you mentioned in, in the last podcast. I think I did. <laughs> I yes. don't know if it yes, ended since... up in the final audio, but uh, when I bought the Blu-ray for Fitzcarraldo, I also bought the Blu-ray for that <laughs> incident at Loch Ness. So uh, it is now in my collection, waiting to be be viewed. Uh, but before we get to really digging into, we're gonna. First, obviously, talk about some of the controversy surrounding Fitzcarraldo and some of the people involved in it. We will, of course, dive into maybe what we're watching first. Let's start with some happy, because we're going to get into some dark stuff, folks. Uh, and I and I would just say, right now, we've been sort of very, I, I don't know if what the word would be, cagey or sort of cryptic. But uh, this is probably, for some people, going to be a trigger warning, because there is some discussion of... Not in explicit detail, but references to discussions about uh, sexual assaults and things like violence, etc. If that is something that you particularly can't handle, this may be an episode you want to skip because there is some history behind Fitzgeraldo that we really can't ignore in order to talk about the film. Uh, so, yeah, so if that's something, you know, it's a little bit much for you, uh, maybe... Maybe this one you just skip um, and just come back when we talk about whatever David suggests at the end of the episode. I guess we got to talk about this movie, which is Fitzgeraldo yes, <laughs> from long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And I uh, believe 1982? 82 is the, uh, the, the, yeah. So before we can actually talk about the film proper and what the film is about, uh, we said we were going to talk about some of the background of the film, including some elements of its production and some of the people involved in this. Uh, and again, this is where some of the content is a little bit heavy. So if this is some, you know, sexual assault and things like that is stuff that you really, uh, is, is just not your cup of tea or you just really and not in a space where that can be something you can, you f- feel you can handle. Uh, this would be a point to just stop. Um, and so with that, well, I'm hoping that sexual assault is not your cup of tea. Well, I, I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I, you know what I meant? That means like, yes, if it's I a do. topic that you really can't handle. I, a cup of tea is obviously a weird phrasing. That is not what I meant. Uh, I was just trying to give people plenty of headway, uh, in case that way they don't get blindsided by something that could be potentially triggering. Understood. So with that in mind, let's start by talking about the star of this film, Klaus Kinski who was deeply controversial before David mentioned in DM something I did not know. Uh, he is controversial, I, I think, historically largely because of his antics. He is known as being a particularly aggressive, occasionally violent, very difficult actor, including on the production of Fitzcarraldo. There is a potentially or maybe real uh, story, possibly apocryphal story, that uh, one of the native uh, cast members who is unnamed uh, offered to have Klaus Kinski killed and Werner Herzog had and not only said no, but also contemplated <laughs> whether or not maybe that was a thing I wanted, but decided I need to finish the film, so no. Uh, and that is largely because there is some video evidence of Klaus Kinski being very aggressive, screaming, really making production difficult. Werner Herzog has talked about this explicitly, that Kinski was incredibly difficult and really made people's lives miserable. And that was not unique to this film because this was the second film that uh, Herzog did with Kinski. And in fact, Kinski was not originally supposed to be in this, but the original actor caught dysentery because they filmed in places that 
you know, didn't have a lot of the um, modern accoutrements and were actually out, you know, in the jungle. So uh, that is something to mention. But David, you had brought up probably the the really the part that almost made us want to say maybe we should switch the movie and just not tell anybody. Uh, and that is what, David? Yeah, well, and just to, just to pick up on one of the, the points, the, the the story about the you know, Herzog being you know the the offer to to kill Kinski that is a, a story that Herzog himself tells in My Best Fiend, uh, the documentary he made about his relationship with Kinski. Uh, but and then but there too you have to be you have to uh, you know the uh, some of the other stories that he tells in there shows how fast and loose he and Kinski played with facts. So. Uh, uh, there's, he needs to approach that one with caution. But, uh, the, yeah, the, the big problem is, um, the, uh, report by, uh, uh, Kinski's youngest daughter of his, uh, uh, sexual abuse of her. Um, and, uh, something that, uh, uh, it also, uh, comes up with, um, his, uh, um, Nastasha Kinski, his, his elder daughter. So, uh, yeah, Paul Akinsky, uh, published an autobiography talking about this. And, uh, the, you know, so this, this certainly, uh, we, you know, run the difficulty of, of, you know, it's hard to separate to, to, to see Kinsky on screen and, and not be aware of that. Uh, the, his, uh, you know, the behavior that, you know, shifts from the difficult to the out and out monstrous. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, the, and I recall an interview, uh, with a screenwriter, uh, this was, uh, before this came out, um, but was, uh, about the same topic who was opining that the world was a much better place now that Kinski was dead. And, and I certainly think that to some degree, probably Herzog feels that as well, because his relationship with, with Kinski was particularly contentious. Uh, you know, Herzog has talked at other times of having a desire to kill Kinski, which I suppose you could maybe suggest is, is, you know, playing loose, loose with facts. But given some of the video evidence, I, I, I suspect that those were certainly thoughts that Herzog openly entertained. And I, and I think the interview you're talking about, I mean, I could understand this does not, he does not seem to have been a man with whom you, you enjoyed your interactions. I will note that, uh, we'll talk about the controversy concerning some of the, the more direct filming issues, but, uh, this film does feature some indigenous people as, as extras and yeah. set design and stuff. And Kinski, as you mentioned before, right, that these both of them seem to play a little bit loose with fact on occasion. Kinski claims that the, uh, some of the indigenous people really, he had a deep connection to them. And uh, Herzog has claimed the opposite, which is that the indigenous peoples were terrified of, of Kinski. I am inclined to think that Herzog may be the more correct, just because, again, there's there's video evidence of him screaming at people on set and really causing a ruckus. And I suspect if you're sort of like a very chill like guy, just, like these people just showed up in Peru and were like, hey, you want to work on a movie? And you're like... Yeah, sure. Like I, I was gonna like go farming or like go for a swim, but I guess I'll do that and then have like a kind of I don't I don't know what the right word would be, but just out of his gourd sort of abusive German man screaming at you uh, would would maybe not make you inclined to like that person. <laughs> uh, to put it mildly, yeah, yeah. 
But yeah, so like you said, right, that we already kind of knew that he was contentious and difficult and a controversial figure. And we, I think we kind of expected we'd have to talk about that. But I, I did not know that he had been potentially, uh, that he had been accused and likely very much did, in fact, uh, assault both of his daughters to varying degrees based on their accounts. Yeah. And I, that was something that I mean, I, I, you know, looked it up rather late in the day. I'd had in the back of my mind there was something, but I'd forgot. I I hadn't known the uh, the details. So, um, so something that would uh, <laughs> that we only encountered a couple of days before um, uh, g- going to uh, record this. Yeah, and and I will note that I I could have looked that up, but I I did not feel comfortable discussing in much detail beyond that. Um, there are some details, like in the wiki page for. Th- uh, one of the daughters, uh, I can't, I can't remember which one that they give a little bit more to it, but I just, I personally did not feel comfortable talking about specific, uh, claims that were being made. I think it's kind of enough just to note that Kinski may have been whatever the word we would use, Artur or artist or whatever the hell we want to call him. The reality is that I think sometimes we are a little, we as in our society sometimes maybe grant a little bit too much leniency to artists who sort of cross lines. And, you know, we have seen a bit more pushback in our culture today, not specifically on the the claims of his daughters. Uh, I mean, more like some of his onset antics, like some other actors have had those problems. And that has led to some very public conversation about what's appropriate behavior on a set. Um, you know, think I would think like Christian Bale is an example where we have the audio of him screaming at a... Uh, I don't remember who it was, maybe a gaffer or something on set. Uh, so w- it does seem like we're becoming less less willing to accept some of the, uh, those behaviors as being legitimate eccentricities, which I am very thankful for because I, I, f- I get that people can kind of get in the moment when you're acting and maybe that can be hard to separate that out, especially if you maybe get into it a bit too much. But there is a line. And I think I think it's fair to say that Kinski crossed that when he was on set. And he absolutely crossed it with his, in his personal life uh, in many, many different ways that are horrific. So we we are the, the, this uh, is one of the issues that uh, Fiscaralda presents uh, as, as a problem. In this case, uh, uh, perhaps uh, in the case of Kinski's um, behavior outside of the film, uh you know that that's not directly connected to the film in that uh at least you know to to the best of our knowledge this is not something that Herzog or, or anyone else knew was going on uh but um it is at the same time it's part of the broader tangle of problems that the film presents uh in that uh I was saying to uh Sean before we started to record uh, Roger Ebert in his praise of the film, uh, in his initial review, uh, says that, uh, one is always aware of both, both of the film and of the making of the film. Uh, and you, you can't watch the film and not be conscious of, uh, what, well, you can see what was done in order to create what you're seeing on the screen. And, uh, that, for, I think for, for many people, uh, in the years, uh, uh, around its release, uh, have added to the mystique of the film. I think this is certainly why uh, Ebert was 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 a point of favor as far as Ebert is concerned. I don't know that 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 
I mean, at least I, I, I found it was the reverse that my awareness of what went on, uh, in the film was coloring how I, uh, uh how I could perceive it, uh, and my enjoyment of it. Uh, there, there are other aspects of, of the film that I, uh, found myself taking issue with that were, uh, perhaps, you know, more internal to the, the, the art itself, but still, I think, as I think we'll get to, you know, not entirely dissociated with the, the background. And so the, the problem of you know, how one feels about watching Klaus Kinski on the screen extends to the entire movie, I think. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, I mean, this, this film, I mean, we mentioned before, but the original actor was Jason Robards. Uh, was going to be the 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 lead, and he caught dysentery. But that's kind of the most mild of the issues with ha- what this film did, because that is a thing that maybe sometimes happens when you film in certain kinds of locations. Uh, but you're specifically thinking, especially of the deaths and injuries that occurred on set, and the probably very credible accusation that Herzog probably. Uh, you know, took advantage of and exploited the indigenous people who worked on the film, specifically the Aguarana people, or Aguaruna people, um, who I believe are in Peru, if I recall correctly. And there's, there's quite a lot here. I mean, it, it appears that in the initial stages of the film, things were fairly fine, that there were no real major issues, but as injuries and things going wrong on set occurred, that relationship soured very quickly, especially given that Herzog uh, apparently may have attempted to build a, a small settlement slash village uh, in Aguaruna territory, which did not did not get the permission of the tribal council to do so. Uh, and yeah, so there were some certainly some conflicts. And I mentioned deaths. Some of them were indigenous extras that were in the film who either uh, received injuries as a p- part of this or actually died. Um, another in- uh, incident involved a Peruvian man who apparently got bit by a venomous snake uh, that is not ever explained which one it is. And he chopped his own uh, foot off with a chainsaw, apparently, to save his life. Uh, and I and I do think you're right that this a lot of this sort of colors how we have to view the film proper. Because, you know, when you think, especially of the indigenous people, they're very present in the film. Uh, And I have a lot of thoughts on how the film approaches them, both on a narrative perspective and in terms of how it is filmed. And that, I mean, the the whole mystique of of the film, so much of the the mystique of of the film revolves around the, the fact that the most... That, that it's central image, the, the impossible thing being done in the film. Uh, but you know what? I'm, I'm going to stop myself there for a moment. Uh, Sean, do you want to tell us a little bit about what happens in the movie? And then we can, uh, come back and, and, uh, talk about the, what was done in the film to create what happens, uh, sorry, what was done in the making of the film to create what happens in the film. Sure. So I suppose that the basic plot of this film is a, a man by the name of Brian Sweeney Fitzgerald, who goes by Fitzcarraldo, living in Brazil, uh, 
uh, or the Amazon base in, in Peru. It, it's not exactly clear where he is at any given time. Sometimes it's Peru. Sometimes it's, you know, the space. I don't know. Uh, is it, I think who, it's, it's Peru. It's, it's Peru, it? but Brazil is mentioned a bunch of times for some reason. I don't really know. Maybe he goes to, I don't, whatever. And it, it doesn't matter <laughs> where exactly it's set. Uh, because the place that they go down, uh, really doesn't actually exist. It's sort of mythologized. Uh, and I think even the people that they're in it are mythologized. Uh, but in any case, so it's a guy by the name of Fitzgerald who goes by the name of Fitzcarraldo, who is supposed to be an Irish man. And yet in the English, he's, he's German. Uh, so who wishes to build an opera house in a settlement in Peru. Uh, of course, he doesn't have a lot of money, so he begins as an ice maker, and then he tries to get involved in the rubber industry, and he deals with a lot of the problems of the wealthy people in the area, not really taking him seriously about his dreams of having an opera house so that he can bring opera to the Amazon. Uh, and not willing to give up, he uses his, uh, girlfriend? Mistress? I'm not sure exactly what her relationship is, uh, but, uh, a woman by the, by the name of Molly, uh, who he, he basically gets her to help finance his efforts to buy a steamship and take it down the, one of the rivers and then eventually to take the boat over a mountain to the other side of the river, uh, because that side of the river cannot be crossed because there is a rapid that you cannot get past. And so in order to get to this very rich rubber, uh, rubber trees, uh, he has to take the ship over. And in the process of doing that, uh, his, he must go through this territory where there are a people who are described as being very violent and that every expedition that has been done doesn't succeed. Uh, and his original crew essentially abandons him and then he enlists playing almost like a godlike figure, the help of a bunch of indigenous people to get it across uh, the the river and ultimately he does not succeed he succeeds in traversing the river uh, but does not succeed in building his opera house but he then does use the and I, I think my favorite shot of it which is he brings the opera to his boat and then goes up and down the river with the opera playing on his boat which i think is nice and i think that kind of covers the plot but yes they, they actually do move this boat over a mountain yeah, and that's the, 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 the iconic image of the film and also associated with its creation. The fact that Herzog actually did move a boat over a mountain. Uh, it, so he, so Herzog actually does what his character does, uh, in, in the film. And so I think, so, uh, right there, the, the, the film, I mean, it kind of in, encourages us to, uh, or, or, or makes it very difficult for us to disassociate, uh, the, the making with the result, right? The, you're, you're watching this and you're simultaneously thinking, oh, this is crazy. What, uh, the, uh, what, what, uh, Fitzcarraldo was trying to do here. And at the same time, your mind is going, good God, Herzog is actually moving a boat over a mountain here. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, and, but then along with that, at least I, uh, I found is, is also becoming very conscious of, yeah. And in order to do that, he, uh, you know, it's it like a giant scythe came through and, uh, destroyed, uh, all of this rainforest area, uh, uh, for that, that Fitzcarraldo did, but Herzog did too. Uh, both, you know, in order to do in, in the name of this quixotic dream. And, 
uh, and you were telling me uh, uh, before uh, recording that uh, you can still see uh, on Google Images the uh, the effects of that production. You can still the the, the sandbar uh, is still there. Not the effects, but the location of oh, oh, presumably okay. where the boat was was actually crossed. Oh, I misunderstood you. And I should just correct myself that the rivers mentioned in the film are in fact real rivers, but I don't think that the the version of the geography was necessarily real. Uh the rivers of the Ukayali River and one of its tributaries, the Pachatea. Uh but again, a lot of the other stuff is is somewhat fictionalized. But yeah, it's not the effects. It's just that uh, you can actually get, go to the actual Google image like location and see where the the boat presumably was taken across. Right. But not and necessarily so- the effects. So there, I remember being, you know, stopped by the scene where they are chopping down this enormous tree in order to, uh, to, to, to build the path through the, uh, through the slope to, to get the boat up. And again, it, it was moments, so many moments like that, which completely took me out of the film because, uh, I was saying, okay, there are actually, you know, this, this, this magnificent tree is actually being, uh, torn, uh, chopped down for this, to benefit this this bizarre spectacle and so this so the issues that that uh raise along with the the, the questions of uh of exploitation that uh you mentioned uh, earlier and then on, on top of that we have the the portrayal of of Fitzcarraldo himself who was based on a historical figure uh who who actually did that or well he, he the the ship was taken taken apart lift uh taken over the the mountain and then put back together again uh but who was a a rubber baron uh and and so we have this prime example of a colonialist figure who in this version comes is is presented to us as i think we're supposed to essentially admire this dreamer um that that uh Fitzcarraldo uh, the, the film celebrates its central character so the the movie felt to me a little bit like uh you know if heart of darkness uh was presented as being a happy story uh <laughs> this is what we yeah. would get and <laughs> uh you know i the era in which this film comes out, I mean, the, uh, it's been pointed out how, for instance, uh, Herzog's Aguirre, The Wrath of God, was a, an influence on Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. And you can certainly see that. Uh, and, and, uh, Fitzcarraldo shares some of the same DNA of, uh, Apocalypse Now, both of them being, uh, in, you know, these, these over the top films that, uh, have over the top, uh, I use the the perhaps the that, that expression a little inadvisedly, uh, or or or, or uh, you know that, that that hardly touches on what exactly went on backstage to the so, so I'm I'm sorry I'm not being terribly coherent here, but uh, just how fraught the uh, the productions were, uh, but the, I think the lurking in the background too there's something there's another kind of movie that was being made at this same time uh the a, a, a subgenre that emerged uh a couple of years bef- a few years before in the late 70s and was still uh, uh present uh in 1982 and that's the Italian cannibal film and uh I do see uh links between uh, Fitzcarraldo and Cannibal Holocaust in their, 
of portrayals of the indigenous populations. Uh, we don't get uh, wriggling innards in Fitzcarraldo, but the threat of them uh, certainly lingers in the uh, in in the background. Uh, there is this heart of darkness approach to the uh, to to the journey, a massive degree of othering that uh, is is going on. And, uh, and ironically, uh, where if, if cannibal Holocaust revels in the very things it pretends to condemn, it does, uh, however problematically, and that's extremely problematically, presents a critique of colonialism. And I saw virtually none of that in Fitzcarraldo. I am a very much of the same mind. I know that that the issue of colonialism in especially his his earlier work, I can't speak to some of his his later work, but it's 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 very potent and it's one of the reasons why Herzog has remained a an on and off fairly controversial director and I think that becomes even more so now because I also I mean, I love that the, the phrase you give, give was like, if the heart of darkness was a happy story. Um, uh, you know, even though Fitzcarraldo does not ultimately technically succeed here, he, he brings the opera to the jungle, which is his, his overarching goal, but he ultimately wanted to bring an opera house. I think it, it is hard not to see that narrative as the attempt to introduce and make superior a specific Western artistic idea i mean at no point does he ever consider for example the indigenous people's uh religious beliefs or their their music there are moments in the film that the they they sing but it is it is usually presented as as like ritualistic things and then largely forgotten and whether or not this is a a herzog decision or it is a a consequence of the kind of film being made. And, and so this was that. Uh, I, I just don't see this film as ultimately being a critique of colonialism, largely because uh, Fitzcarraldo ends up ultimately a success at the end. He And it, it, it's just, I, I feel like on all levels, this this is the, the type of film that while it is very important in a lot of ways, it is it is indistinguishable from the kinds of European narratives about the jungle uh because the implication here is that the absence of opera means that the jungle is is less civilized and our our two methods of seeing that in the story are by looking at the the rich rubber barons who are presented as conniving uh they really don't take Fitzcarraldo seriously they don't care that much about the arts they care about making lots of money smoking cigars gambling I mean there there are these brilliant scenes where the lead rubber baron is like feeding his money to these fish just to show you how quickly money just disappears and how little value it adds to him that's sort of the one side we get to the civilization coin which is capitalistic horror in a way or the other side, which is native peoples who seem to have no real identity of their own, except by, by dint of being native peoples who, you know, are presented in their native garb. And I assumed to some degree that native garb is, is true to character of these people. Uh, but it is presented as though they're, they are othered. Uh, and that Fitzcarraldo is the, the proper civilization because he's trying to bring opera because opera is civilized and that's just a very common 
uh, narrative about places that are quote unquote undiscovered, even though they actually are discovered that just like white people haven't really got there yet. Uh, and I, yeah, so there, there's just a lot here. Uh, and, and, and even in the production of this film, I mean, you could maybe criticize it for also engaging a lot of this, given that he probably didn't pay the indigenous people all that much to be in his film in the same way as the gods must be crazy did not pay its, um, African people all that much to be in that film either. I did see one, uh, a source saying that he, uh, was paying twice the going rate. Well, but if your going rate is not enough money. <laughs> Yeah, right, so, so yeah, so that that to be taken with you know whatever grains of salt, right? Uh, yeah, but, like if you're only making a penny a day and the double the rate is two pennies, right? right? It's not exactly a, a material, significant material uh, change. Yeah, I mean there may be that. I don't know, but but there is your earlier point that uh, that, that you made that uh, however things began, the relationship uh, that Herzog had with uh, the um, his is. Um, with the indigenous people, they're soured. The you know, thing, things weren't going well by the end. Yeah. Well, and there is something to be said here that uh, some of the reading I was doing, um, uh, a book called The Case of Herzog, uh, or I think this is a chapter from the book. I can't remember what the whole thing was. Maybe it's a companion, the companion to Werner Herzog, uh, makes a, an interesting point, which is that it's hard to know how much of the controversy surrounding Herzog's work is based in actual things that he did or did you know that or refused to do uh because a lot of i mean herzog has sort of said this like in a lot of ways he has elicited controversy kind of on purpose to draw attention and so there could be i I think it is fair it is a fair criticism to say that he he very definitely uh took advantage of and exploited indigenous peoples whether he went so far as to do some of the things that are suggested, like he ignored, uh, he just started building on their land and ignored their wishes in every single way. I don't know. These could be things where there was a controversy and he just simply enhanced them in order to draw attention. But that is something that has been lobbed at him in the past, is this idea that that he sort of just like runs with controversy in his work, I think in large part to draw attention, uh, which is not a thing I necessarily approve of i i think it's especially since the kinds of things that he's accepting as being quote-unquote true whether or not they actually are uh are harmful to say the least and this is an an example of it. i mean it, people did die and get injured on his set multiple people including indigenous people uh so there's a degree of recklessness uh, presented and it feeds into the narrative we're being presented because this is a film that does not treat its native subjects as being people in the full sense of the word. Fitzcarraldo gets to be a full person, uh, but other characters don't necessarily get to be that. And it's Fitzcarraldo's, uh, desires that are ultimately the ones that the film takes as, as the ones we're supposed to care about. Although I yeah. don't know about you. I I found it very difficult to find characters in this that I genuinely felt sympathy for uh because I kind of hated almost everyone. <laughs> well, we, I mean we're not really given uh I mean other than I mean Fitz- Fitzcarraldo is so utterly the center of the narrative that every single other person in the film is simply defined by how they react to him. 
either uh, supporting his dream or or going against it. Right. And so the, what you said before, the, uh, certainly the, the other, the, the rubber barons who are, are presented as a kind of bad capitalism, uh, because they don't like opera, right? There isn't, uh, the, the question of, uh, how they are, are treating, uh, their indigenous workers as dealt with in one scene, uh, early on in the film. But when, uh, Fitzcarraldo is going, is, uh, has bought a, uh, a large, a vast property in order to make a lot of money from rubber and then bring the, uh, the, the opera house, uh, have the opera house built. The, the, there's no real issue raised about, uh, what he's about to do there, right? It's just, in fact, the fact that his, uh, capitalist enterprise is a means to an end there seems to make it okay. So, uh, and getting back to the other, the, the other figure. So, uh, Molly played by Cla- Claudia Cardinal, uh, her, um, uh, she, she's the good side of capitalism, right? And she, she runs a brothel, uh, because, uh, she's supporting his dream. And then the same thing uh, happens all, all the way along. And to c- come back to your point about the, uh, question of the, the, uh, the, the religious beliefs of the, of the, the indigenous characters. Yeah. It is presented as either something that he can use, Right, this whole legend of a white god coming up the river. I mean, we've been hearing that uh, in in films. Uh, for, you know, I mean, that that felt like something out of 1935, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and you know, bearing in mind that the kind of dream that he has had already been uh, pretty thoroughly critiqued almost a hundred years earlier. Uh, but uh, so, so at any rate, either there's that that useful myth, uh, or Every other, uh, whatever, all, all their other practices are simply presented as mysterious, right? Uh, Fitzcarraldo asks, what is going on here? Uh, the, uh, his, his crewman who acts as translator says, I don't know. They won't tell me. And then that's it. It's, uh, it's left at that. It just becomes part of the, 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 the strange background, uh, that, uh, we were given in the film. Yeah. The, the cook, it's, uh, Erkeke. Um, I, I, I don't think they say his name enough in the film that, that it really registered exactly. But that is also the, the actor's first name, by the way. Erkeke Enrique Borroques, uh, or Borroques. I'm not sure exactly the pronunciation. But yeah, the, the cook who is translator, but is also presented as a drunkard. And I don't know if womanizer is the right word, because he has two women with him at the start who are his quote unquote assistants, but they eventually get dumped. Because they are, they are causing issues on the ship, but I don't know if it's because they are causing the issues or they're with other men or other men are trying to take them. It's, it's not exactly, to me, it was not exactly clear what, what specifically was the issue with them, except that it was creating a conflict on the ship. Cause there's, right. there's that point, right, uh, where they, they get down the, um, the, the river or up the river, I suppose is the more appropriate term because they technically go up it, right? The Pachatea, uh, and they do meet missionaries. There's a missionary settlement, but that is the furthest settlement we're told. Um, and they hang out with the missionaries for the bit. And there are a bunch of like fights and arguments about the women and it's not fully explored. But yeah, at one point, basically the, the ship captain, uh, who is, uh, played by Paul Hitzscher, um, who is Orinoco Paul, which is such a cool name for a captain. Uh, he basically says, you need to take care of it or we're just going to have a disaster on this ship. And so he just tosses them 
to basically throw them on shore and just is like, good luck, <laughs> which is a, really awful when you think about it. Well, and, and so yeah, and, and there too, then right? It's uh, the the all these these characters matter only insofar as they help or hinder Fitzcarraldo's dream, right? That right. The uh, and and then the you know the we have all you know he plays uh, some Enrico Caruso on his gramophone, and uh, we have this uh, you know the, the all of these people who who uh, decide to uh, you know his his dream is now theirs effectively. Right. Uh, that, uh, and I mean, the, the way this is celebrated, I can, I can, I can understand the appeal viewed a certain way. Right. I mean, uh, I was speaking with a friend of mine, uh, about the, the, the film last night and, uh, his, and he remembers loving it so much when he first encountered it, which would have been as a teenager when in 1982, uh, and it and Aguirre were among his, uh, uh, his, his entry points into, uh, uh, Euro- European, uh, or, or art cinema generally. And I was thinking about this afterwards and I don't, and I hear I don't want to put uh, words into his mouth. Uh, but, uh, I was thinking, you know, if you're like, uh, um, you know, a, a, a young Western male, uh, the, the, the kind of adolescent fantasy that is presented by, uh, this, this film, uh, I would be very appealing, right? The, nobody in the world understands your glorious dream, uh, but, uh, to, uh, to quote the thesis, uh, of, of, uh, some of her talk's work that o- only dreamers can move mountains. Uh, so that, that's a very appealing story as long as you don't, uh, look more closely at, you know, the, I mean, the, the film touches on people who are dying, uh, people in, in the, in, in the story do die for, uh, uh, Fritz Corraldo's dream and he seems to feel bad about it for a day or so. But in the end, we are given his glorious beaming smile, smoking his huge cigar as he has opera, uh, 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 being performed, uh, you know, he, he has realized a form of his dream, right? Yeah, with uh, his velvet chair. <laughs> yes, with his velvet chair, right. So, um, I mean, the, you know, which isn't to say that, that Herzog doesn't, I mean, in, in Aguirre, uh, uh, Kinski's character is a monster. Uh, and, uh, that is a film that is much more straight up Heart of Darkness. It has its own issues. Uh, and, and some of them, uh, very similar to the ones we've already been discussing. Uh, but I just couldn't get away from the, you know, the, like, the, this looked like, like the kind of story that Rudyard Kipling would have nodded in, in a hearty approval over. Yeah, I mean, it is, it is a film where, like, my very charitable side wants to read this as being aware that the, the, characterization and the story itself are a critique or at least a presentation of something that we're not meant to take as as a good thing um but the less charitable side just makes me realize like this is 1982 and i i i cannot speak to new german cinema of which herzog is a very prominent member because uh, I, I just don't know enough about it, and you probably know more about it than I do. Uh, but maybe this is this is something that is just part of the cinema. Because my understanding is that New German cinema, one of the big 
components of it, or at least it, in Herzog's variations of it, are is the idea of people with seemingly impossible visions uh, who or ambitions who don't necessarily always succeed at them, but yet still fervently adhere to those desirous dreams at the expense of everything else, which certainly explains Fitzgeraldo, uh, because that's precisely the kind of character that he is. You're right. Like, there are moments when he seems aware that people are suffering on his behalf, and then he just abandons it very quickly because he must finish his mission. And it's it's interesting to me because my hope had been that as this film progressed, that it would become tragic. That here's this guy who, you know, setting aside the colonial reading of bringing the opera to the jungle, which we're shown at the beginning of the film technically has already happened because they go to an opera house in Brazil, I believe, uh, which I don't know about you, but, but the jungle's still there. So technically the opera's already there, but he wants to bring it deeper to the jungle for reasons. Uh, but, but setting the colonial narrative aside, right, the idea of this guy sort of pursuing this ridiculous dream and then coming up with an even more ridiculous incarnation of it and being put up against seemingly impossible odds and then failing miserably, that is a, for me, a much more satisfying narrative than the, the sort of real, like, sort of white man only matters ending that we get because at the end there, he doesn't succeed. He doesn't get to build the opera house. He doesn't get to, to get all of the, the rubber trees so that he can make the money to make the opera house. He even sells the boat back to the person he bought it from. <laughs> and then what he does is he puts on his little opera show and he seems perfectly content, but there's no sort of acknowledgement of all of the things that had happened to get him there, which included, right, destroying huge parts of a forest, uh, people dying on his behalf, exploiting an indigenous people. All of this seemed to happen. His crew abandoning him. He never talks about the crew people he just left behind, right? He just abandons them on the side of the river. And it's just like, yeah, I'll figure out how to get home. None of that seems to come into it. It is so intensely stuck in his world and his desires and his perspective of things and his success and his reinterpretation of his failures that it, it doesn't want to acknowledge the rest. And on the one hand, that's really interesting because it makes him a deeply unsympathetic character. But I think the film wants us to kind of be sympathetic to him. And I'm not. <laughs> like, yeah. I like the idea of, I like the scene at the end with the, the boat going and the opera being played. Uh, I don't know which one is, is being played. Maybe, maybe a Caruso because he seems to really like Enrico and Caruso. But outside of that, like once I put it in context, it's just not as enjoyable of a scene. And I feel that way about so many of the other characters because even when we're not talking about him, we're talking about the rubber barons who are also monstrous in their own way. Uh, and it's just, it, it makes it very difficult to get to the end and feel like, these are people that I don't want to get dysentery. Yeah, and the I mean, when we get to that ending, right? The uh, it's, it's like you like you said, it's, he doesn't succeed in what he set out to do, but what he winds up with seems to be absolutely good enough for him, right? He he is clearly feeling triumphant by by the end, and so right. it, so somehow uh, so the, the question of was this moment of uh you know paying an opera company to perform on a boat worth 
the cost that led up to this? And the film's answer seems to be yes, because the film uh, has done precisely the same thing. Is the, uh, the film worth the cost that was paid to make it? Right. Uh, and, and it, so it seems to be presenting its, its, uh, in some ways an argument, uh, to justify its own existence, as well as being the inverse of, uh, Aguirre, where, which essentially just gives us the completely opposite perspective, right? Where, uh, Kinski's character, uh, on a, uh, is, is on a quest, but is, you know, uh, stops at nothing, including murder. Uh, and all of which just leads to, uh, madness and death and, uh, him floating away on a raft, ranting at monkeys at the end. Um, but, uh, here it's, there's, his, his figure is celebrated. Uh, even if, I mean, I, there, there seems to be very few direct criticisms of his character in there, even though, uh, we aren't given a lot of reasons to sympathize with him other than the fact that perhaps we are expected to buy into his dream in the same way that all the other characters do. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's really I, I, the phrase that I use, which is like he gets to reinterpret his own failures or he gets to reinterpret the things that happened to him. I, I think is really important because this film is absolutely from the colonial gaze, 100%. Uh, because everything, and it is from the male gaze too, and I'll mention, I'll explain why that is in a, in a second, although it's not exactly a revolutionary statement. Uh, but because everything is funneled through how he views himself, how Fitzgeraldo interprets the world around him, and we are following along in his vision, right? It, it affects how we have to, or at least it's supposed to affect how we think about the rest of the film, because we are meant, I think we're meant to sympathize with them, and I think that largely because you know, I said before I didn't know if we were, but then I started to think about all of the scenes where he is trying to elicit the support of the rubber barons, and they are presented as these just opulent, you know, ridiculous wealth who laugh at him and don't really take him seriously and just kind of find him as a curious amusement. Up to including like one of the barons just insulting him to his face, saying, I'll have my dog's cook get you food, uh, you know. There, there is an element of like we're supposed to be sympathetic to this idea, uh, but because of the perspective that we get, it makes it much more difficult, at least I think, for a modern audience. Uh, and I'd mentioned right that it's colonial gaze because of the, you know he's a European, he's supposed to be Irish, but I just could never read him as Irish. He just seemed German to me, <laughs> probably from the accent. Uh, you know that we get this colonial gaze because of the kinds of things that he's talking about—a thing we've mentioned before, right—the idea that he's bringing opera to the jungle as, as a civilizing measure. Uh, but he, we also get the male gaze because the end, the last scene we get of Molly isn't a scene like from the side of her looking out or from behind. It's almost exclusively a visual of her from the front taken as though from the deck of the ship looking through like binoculars. And all she's doing is smiling and sort of happy laughing. And that is the last image of her. We don't get a moment of her and, and Fitzcarraldo together. He doesn't even bring her to the boat. He, she just stands there in the mud with everybody else while he does his opera. Uh, and I, I think it's very telling, right? That of the two of them, she's the successful business person. Right. Yes, she's running a brothel and there's certainly critiques of running a brothel. Right. Uh, there's a certainly exploitation there. But of the two of them, 
she's the only one running a successful business. So his other business before he switched to trying to do rubber was making ice. And uh, that didn't really succeed. His most success apparently was getting the local children really excited. That seemed to be about it because nobody else took it seriously. Well, and remember, he's bankrupt because of a failed attempt to bring the rail to do the the Trans Andean Railroad. Yes, and oh God, we got we got to talk about that exploitation too, because of course, who's the person he leaves behind to take care of the railroad station, and who oh, he yeah. clearly forgot, saying a Brazilian African descendant man uh, so i guess african brazilian afro brazilian i'm not sure what the appropriate name would be but he is clearly of african descent and he's played by a brazilian actor who apparently is like surprised when he shows up and it, it uh, in a lot of ways seems like even he's surprised to see this guy still there like oh okie dokie well, he's still here uh i guess i'm gonna take all of the rail rails away well, he's and he's a character who is portrayed essentially indistinguishably from the comic relief butlers of the 1930s. Pretty much, yeah. It is a, a pretty kind of messed up character, and he just disappears from the story. Uh, again, like ca- other characters are a vehicle for Fitzcarraldo. You know, the the closest he gets to a character that he really speaks to and maybe lends credence to outside of Molly is maybe the ship captain. But even then, not really, right? Otherwise, characters are just, they're just there to further his story. Uh, and, and by, and deliberately on his part, right? That's precisely why they're there. Uh, and it's, it, I, I think in, from a modern perspective, it makes it very difficult to sort of see his character as any sort of positive at the end. I kind of view him as really indistinguishable from the people who didn't take him seriously, the rubber barons. I don't really see what's what's quite different. At least they're honest. Uh, that might be the difference, right? They're just honest, like, yeah, we're just exploiting people and, like, that we like money. Uh, he is pretending like he's doing good, and maybe that's what makes him more insidious. And yet, and yet the film, I don't think the film presents him as insidious. No. But I, and I think, uh, again, though, the, uh, I guess uh, just to, I know I, I keep harping on, on this film, but, uh, which I, I think some of what we've been talking about, I think adds even more interest to Instant at Loch Ness, which while as it, on the one hand is a send up parody, uh, poison pen letter, uh, to, uh, the, the Hollywood industry, uh, as represented, uh, in the film by, by Zach Penn, but, I, it also seems to me that we also have Herzog sending himself up, uh, in that, you know, this, you know, we are given a story here of a, uh, a film that is made, uh, with a, a terribly fraught, uh, uh, production, including deaths. And, uh, when the, 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 here, the question, uh, when it arises, like, well, was that worth it? Were, were all these, these deaths worth it to make the, this film? And the answer is clearly no. So I, it feels to me that we, uh, in, in that film, we have, uh, two uh, complementary critiques, uh, at work, both of the industry from which director Zach Penn emerges and, but also, I think of uh, Herzog, you know, perhaps uh, critiquing his own uh, past. Uh, at least, I, I think that that reading is potentially in that one. 
Yeah, I don't think you're wrong. It is interesting that, uh, you know, this is meant to be a, a podcast about good movies, and almost everything we have said has been <laughs> criticism of the film. It is visually striking. You know, it looks great. Uh. It, it is. It is very visually striking. I am less impressed by some of the, the directorial choices, because I think there are some shots that maybe linger too much. Honestly, the the coolest shots in the whole movie are the shots of the ship ap- apps actually being moved, which mm-hmm. unfortunately are shots that I feel somewhat guilty for enjoying, other than obviously the opera scene at the very end. And I and I I want to say that there's a lot that I find interesting about the idea of opera as the vehicle to which Fitzcarraldo wishes to sort of express himself, because in a way his character is very operatic, right? Very dramatic in the way of an opera performance which were shown in the film and and those sequences i quite like and even his sort of boyish excitement when he when they get to see the caruso performance at the very beginning of the film they have no tickets for right they just kind of show up and there's even the moment when one of the characters points into the crowd and he says he was pointing at me and it's almost childish and that i found rather endearing um I, and I, I, I kind of have a fascination with a little bit of opera. So, you know, hearing some of the opera pieces and sort of recognizing some of them were kind of made me a little happy, right? There's Enrico Caruso here, but there's also, uh, Verdi and Leon Cavallo, uh, Puccini, Bellini, a little bit of Strauss. Uh, so a lot of that is in here and it is kind of nice to see, but I, I think we're kind of at a position where Maybe both of us feel very much like the things that we like about this just pale in comparison to the things that make us uncomfortable. Yeah, I would have to agree. It was a, uh, it, it's an uncomfortable viewing experience. Yeah. And I, and I wonder how we would have felt maybe if we were both of adult age in 1982, I'm realizing that one of us probably was, uh, <laughs> no, well, <laughs> I, I was not, not quite. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> Almost. Yeah, I mean, since it's it, it's a film that uh, I, I mean, I remember when it came out, but uh, it was one that I, I confess I did not see until uh, this this podcast, and uh, I don't know if it's a question of it hasn't aged well because I didn't see it uh, the first time around, uh, but I think uh, the uh, my my myself in in twenty nineteen finds it a more difficult film to enjoy than I think I might have in nineteen eighty two. Yeah, I I suspect it is just that. We don't have the benefit of having the messed up perspectives of many people who were around in 1982 and were had grown up right in the same era as someone like Herzog had. I think absent of that, it is just it's very difficult to come to this film with any sort of conscience <laughs> and not feel uncomfortable. So I, this may be the first on here where you know, there are films we've watched that I did not like. Mostly they've been your choices, David, uh, <laughs> you monster. Uh, but, but they were films where it was like, there's still a lot of meat for us to chew on that is about the themes of the work, right? Even when we did like, um, cat people or succubus, right? Um, I enjoyed cat, cat people way more than I enjoyed succubus. Succubus I flat out didn't like, but there was a lot that we could talk about and chew on and think about. There were thematic things and interesting performances and interesting directing choices that were not as, not directing choices that felt wrong, but here this definitely feels like a film that I just don't know if I can watch this in any kind of state where I get another reaction other than this. And I feel like that's kind of where we're at. 
Uh, yeah. I think if you you want to see Werner Herzog and you want to watch all of his movies, yeah, I guess watch Fitzgeraldo. But I would just honestly skip straight to his more modern stuff because I just think that it's it's less less evil, <laughs> less less squeaky, uh, squiggly, or whatever the word would be. Um, and I, I suspect you kind of agree. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's still. I mean, here's the thing: in, in order to you know to understand his work. You can't you can't get away from Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo, right? They they are crucial films in his filmography. Uh, they 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 are Im- important movies, right? Uh, but if if you're looking for uh, something that uh, it, where you don't want to be having to be wrestling with, oh, should I really be watching this? Uh, <laughs> then yeah, there are, there are other films in his filmography that uh, uh, are, are are will will create less of an issue. Yeah, so. That leaves us then with the the task of figuring out what we're going to watch yet next. And since we go back and forth, David, that means your choice, since I chose this film, sorry, uh, you get to choose a film. So what, what are we going to watch next, David? So we're looking at a Japanese film uh, next time. Uh, it's uh, Nobuhiko Obayashi's 1977 movie, House. And, uh, this one, uh, is, uh, is one that's been, uh, a gap also in, uh, f- for me, uh, one that I've been meaning to get to for ages. So by forcing you to see it, I finally have to see it as well. Okay. I, I, well, I, I Googled it while you were talking about it and got something very much not that. Because <laughs> apparently there is a 1986 horror movie called house yeah which is yeah not the same film <laughs> not at all it's it's a, a, a comedy horror film it's it's not too it's a it, it's fine uh but uh well this has got this has you know got comedy and horror and also kinds of uh, uh things uh too but is uh by all accounts an infinitely wilder movie than the uh, 80s american film certainly if we're going to take the criterion collections uh cover for it as evidence it's got a creepy demon cat looking thing on it and so I am all for that. Uh, so, yeah, so there you have it, folks. We're going to be watching House. It is streaming on most of the platforms in some form or another. You might have to rent it uh, to watch it digitally. Um, but, yeah, so that it is available. You can watch it. So uh, do watch it for the next time around uh, and, you know, send us your thoughts. Uh, if you have any questions for us or you have a thought about Fitzcarraldo that you'd like to send, um, you can do so at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com. And if you want to support the podcast at the podcast network, you can go to skiffyandfanty.com or go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty to become a member. Uh, so yeah. Th- thank you, David. This was, uh, this was an experience to say the least. <laughs> well, thank you, Sean. And, uh, on that note, awkward ending and scene. Thank you for listening to Totally Pretentious, a Skiffy and Fanti podcast. You can contact us at skiffyandfanti at gmail.com. Find more about this podcast and other podcasts on the Skiffy and Fanti network at skiffyandfanti.com. If you would like to support this podcast and all the podcasts at the Skiffy and Fanti network, you can do so at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanti. To keep up with everything at the Skiffy and Fanti network, please visit skiffyandfanti.com slash newsletter. The music from this podcast is Sundancer by Wild Shores. 
You can find this and other music at freemusicarchive.org.